Well, let's take a quick look at the Gentiles. We won't spend as much time as we did on Israel, obviously, nor will we spend as much time as we did on the church. But there are some things that we need to say to show that there is, in fact, a third program that God has, Gentiles. Now, keep in mind that when we translate both the Hebrew and the Greek word, the Hebrew word goyim, in our English Bible, sometimes it's translated nations, and sometimes it's translated Gentile. Same word. So you can translate it either way, and in some context, one fits better than the other, usually. So also with the corresponding Greek word ethne, or ethnos, that word also has the same translation in our English Bible. Sometimes nations, sometimes Gentiles. So we're talking about the same thing when we talk about Gentiles or we're talking about the nations. So we have a program with all the groups outside of the nation of Israel. In other words, all of the peoples outside of the nation of Israel. And that's what we want to talk about. Uh, The interesting thing, just coming off of what Mark said, the church brings the two together. But we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay, first of all, just a reminder, eschatology is Jewish. The focus is what God is doing. So everything pertaining to Gentiles has to have some relationship, primarily the nation of Israel. Daniel gives us a preview of world history and particularly of the nations. He outlines the rest of world history from his time on to the end of world history. And we'll look at those passages briefly. There's two of them, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Daniel's going to give us a preview of that history. He's going to refer, not specifically using this phraseology, but he's going to discuss the times of the Gentiles in those two passages. We get that phrase from Jesus himself, Luke 21, verse, what is it, 24, I think. The primary function of the times of the Gentiles, it's a discipline on the nation of Israel. That's the function of the nations during this period of time. And Israel is still under this discipline to this very day. So these things take centuries to unfold, but there's a place for the Gentiles. The church is not a part of the times of the Gentiles, because we are a spiritual organism, but it is composed of Gentiles. Gentiles called out, called out of their environment, you might say. The church does exist during the times. It exists during the times, but is not part of the times, particularly the spiritual aspects Mm -hmm. of the church. We are a heavenly organism. There's an apostate church that would be different and separate. They're part of, if they're Gentile, part of the Gentiles. So that's important to keep in mind. And then lastly, on this kind of introductory slide, God's going to deal with the nations according to the Abrahamic covenant, and particularly one little part of Genesis 12, 3 that's promised. And in that, God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, including Gentiles. In other words, all non-Jewish people will be blessed. 
And God has historically dealt with the nations according to what he has entered into covenant with Abraham with and Abraham's descendants. The nations that have blessed Abraham have prospered and have flourished. The nations that have cursed Abraham eventually have come under his judgment as well. And some of them have been lost to history and no longer exist. And uh, Gentiles that have received Jesus Christ have received the ultimate blessing. All of the families have been blessed, including Gentiles, as a result of receiving Israel's Messiah, Abraham's ultimate descendant. And that's made clear in Galatians chapter 3. We looked at that passage. So that's kind of a summary of all of world history right there and how God is going to deal with Gentile peoples. And you can see it expressed in world history. So where do the Gentiles come from? Well, specifically, their origin begins in Genesis 11. Now, it's hard to kind of distinguish that. You could start you could start with Adam, but then you could also make a case that Adam is the forefather of Abraham. And there's a line from Adam to Abraham that you might say, this is kind of a godly line. And all along, there's also an opposing the seed of the serpent as well. So it's, it's not totally accurate to say that the Gentiles begin here, but when they're clearly stated in Scripture is Genesis 11. So let's take a look at their history. Even before Genesis 11, you have in chapter 9, after the flood, this is that account where God lays out basically the outcome of the three sons and their descendants. We have an oracle that I think God gave by revelation to Noah, and it's revealed in that passage, 25 through 27. We have a broad outline of the outcome of the sons of Noah and the descendants of each of those sons. So in a a way, this kind of gives a broad picture of the course that will be before Gentile nations, including Shem. But within Shem, there will be a particular descendant that will eventuate into Abraham. And that will be Genesis chapter, the last part of 11, and, and on from chapter 12. So you might see beginnings of Gentiles even in the flood. And particularly in chapters 10 and 11, where we're part, and particularly 11, where we have the incident of the scattering of peoples that eventuate into nations... So that's somewhat of the origin of the nations. And the table of nations that I referred to, Japheth, primarily resulted in several major empires, at least early on. European kingdoms, primarily north and east of Israel. Ham, who was the youngest, includes an important group, Canaanites, that were the thorn in the flesh of the nation of Israel later, and they are particularly cursed in the oracle. All of the African peoples, some of the eastern peoples, or at least probably a combination of Ham and Shemites would include the eastern peoples. And then we have the chosen Shem, and it's through Shem that we have Abraham eventually. Now, there's a purpose of this table of nations. It serves multi-purposes. Number one, 
gives the origin of the nations, and particularly in relationship to Abraham. And I think chapter 10 lays out the nations that existed in the time frame of Abraham. So Genesis 10, which is usually called the Table of Nations, lays out the origin of the nations, or the ethne, or the Gentiles, you might say. And in that, another purpose is to give all of the ethnic affiliations, the ethnic affiliations, so that Abraham and his descendants kind of know, well, who are these Amorites? Who are these Canaanites? Who are these other groups? So they have an idea of not only where these groups came from, but all of these associations, these ethnicities and groups. And thirdly, it gives us the origin of Israel. They need to know where did we come from and how do we relate to all these groups? What's our relationship? And they'll see immediately from Genesis 9 that God has already set aside Canaanites that they will have contact with, and they are a cursed people. But particularly where the Israelites come from, and they come from Shem, ultimately to Abraham. And then from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes. And we have that in the table of the nations, where they come from. And one point that Paul makes in Acts chapter 17, and I think it's also a purpose of the table of nations, to show that there's a unity in all of humanity. It's a big point that Paul makes the unity of humanity. We all descend through Noah, descend from Adam. Because Noah is related to a line that goes all the way to Adam. And just real quickly, uh, this is generally the geographical distribution of these peoples. These are the immediate descendants of Japheth. So more to the north, as I said, more European. It would also include the Russian area up in that area will probably come from Tubal and or Magog, or a combination. Turkey, Tyrus, Meshech, the Greeks are usually associated with Jabin. Maedai is probably a combination of Maedai and Elamites that would make up the Eastern peoples, like Chinese, Japanese, etc. Now there's debate over that, and there's disagreement. Descendants of Ham... Most prominent would be Canaan, but Put, it would be Libyans, Mishraim, very, very important. These are Egyptians. And then Cush, and probably all the African tribes probably come from either Cush or Put or a combination of the two. And that leaves the Shemites, and Israel will have relationships with their descendants as well. Arpachshad is the forefather of Abraham. So Abraham comes through Arpachshad. These are the immediate sons of Shem. The Assyrians from Ashur, Arameans from Aram, and those probably further north, Lud, another one of the sons, not very prominent in Scripture. Elam, and as I said earlier, the uh, Medi probably make up the eastern peoples. And like I said, there's debate there. So that's the distribution. And all I've added on that slide are the present-day boundaries there in yellow. So Arpachshad, ancient Iraq. When you come to the book of Revelation, you find a word, Babylon, and it traces, I think it draws the imagery from the beginning 
And we could describe a system or an idea of Babylonianism that has its origin all the way back to Babel. So Babel is the prototype of what ends up in the book of Revelation as Babylonianism. And I would kind of define Babylonianism as a world system that is in rebellion and antagonistic to God. Babylonianism. Because that was the essence of what happened at Babel. Man collectively as an organization and as a totality united against the plan of God. God made it clear that, that they were to fill the earth, scatter, fill the earth, subdue and rule over it. And they chose, no, let's stay in one place and let's make a name for ourselves in total contradiction to what God had made clear to Noah and his family. So it begins in Babel. And like I said, the essence of it is a world system antagonistic to God. That world system, you could even see it in Genesis 11. It has cultural elements. It has political elements. It has religious elements. And obviously it would have economic elements. They build a tower acquiring resources. A world system, that's the essence of it. Historically, you see that this world system persists throughout history, and there's a lot of manifestations of it. Egypt would be a picture of the world system localized when uh, the children of Israel were in bondage to that system. It was a system that had its own gods, its own government, its own culture, its own language, antagonistic to God. Pharaoh is kind of the picture that he raises his hand. I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. It's kind of a connection with, with Babel, too, because God said, leave, and they said, no, we're going to stay. Yep. God told the Israelites, leave, and then on the way, they said, no, we want to go back. We want to go back. <laughs> yeah, the world always pulls us back. The world always pulls us back. And then the epitome of it is Babylon. That's kind of the high point of the world system, where we have a one-world system antagonistic to God and God's people, and actually attempts to annihilate God's people wipe them out. So we have a history that persists. That history will persist all the way to the end of the age. It has manifested in these empires that we'll talk about, the world system. The calling of Abraham was God creating his own counterculture. In other words, counter to the world system. He's going to work through one man, call him out, and he's going to create his own nation out of the nations. So Abraham is God basically rejecting the world system. And he's going to work through one man to accomplish his initial purposes that eventuate into a people that will eventuate into a kingdom. And in that kingdom, he will rule the world. And we see that in Daniel. We'll look at that in a couple of passages here. And then it has a future that we'll look at as well. It's kind of a summary of you could call it Gentileism as well, if you will. Or Babylonianism is the word that is used, or Babylon is the word that is used in the book of Revelation. Babylon the Great. And it has a future, 17 and 18. That's the end of Babylon. Okay, I'm laying out the history of the Gentiles. You could say 
one of the passages that kind of indirectly deals with Gentiles is Genesis 9, 25-27, the account after the flood. Now, this would involve the three sons of Noah, but very clearly they're mentioned in Genesis 11, and actually 10 and 11. And when we get to the book of Daniel, we have some passages that lays out what Jesus describes as the times of the Gentiles. And you might turn to Daniel chapter 2. And what we mean by the times of the Gentiles, it's when Gentile nations are dominant on the world scene and Israel is subservient to nations. In other words, they've lost their independence, they've lost their, their kingdom, essentially, and in fact, they're under God's discipline. So the Daniel 2, let's skip to verse 25. Let's start with you again, Eric. Let's start reading in 25, and we'll go from there. Then Ariok hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. In the context, the king has this vision of this image of personage, you might say, and he's gone through all of the wise men in Babylon trying to figure out what does this thing mean? What is this vision? None of them are able. He pronounces judgment upon them. is going to kill them all. And this would include the wise men amongst the Israelites as well. So we have this individual, Ariok, says, hey, there's somebody out there that can do this, or at least he's done this kind of thing before. He's done interpretation. Mark uh, 26. The king said to Daniel, whose name, no, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Okay, so there's the confrontation between the king and Daniel. 27, Jim? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Keep reading. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the vision in your mind while you, while on your bed. An interesting thing here. Here is a pagan, unbelieving, Gentile king that God gives a revelation to. But it requires that he receive an interpretation from one of God's own. So Daniel's the one that will come. And Daniel makes it clear, this is, uh, you know, it's not me that's going to do this interpretation. God is the one that's going to give an interpretation. Vivian, do you want to do 29? As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. And 30, read 30. But after me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So, again, he gives all credit to God. Now skip to verse 36. And Sheila, why don't you read a couple of verses in there? This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation. You, O kings, for the God of heaven has no power, strength, and wherever. Keep going. 
wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of your hand, and has made you all. You are his head. In the image, the image of that personage, the head is made out of gold. The interpretation is you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, and you represent this Babylonian kingdom. So this kingdom, the first part of it is Babylon itself. And the acknowledgement that God is the one that has given him not only the interpretation, but God has given him the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And it's for a purpose. It's not explained here, but putting the scriptures together, God has a purpose and a plan that he's beginning to implement. And it's going to be in relationship to God's people. Eventually we'll see that. So that's the first part of the vision. And historically, on a timeline, this is where I would put the times of the Gentiles. Now, it would begin with probably, if you want a date, I'd use the 605 date, because that's when Babylon took the first wave of captives from Israel. And remember, Daniel is already in Babylon as a result of that first wave. So I would see that as the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Now that phrase doesn't occur in the Old Testament. It comes from Jesus himself, but it's a good description of this period of time where Gentile powers dominate over Israel. And they are not only dominating, but they are God's instruments in disciplining his people. So there's the time frame on a timeline. And the first empire is Babylon, and Babylon from 605 to 538 now, Babylon existed before that, but I'm using 605 as the beginning of the domination and basically this vision. So on a timeline, we'll put each of these empires. There's Babylon and the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the nation of Israel, 586 or 87. Scholars differ on that. I think most of the time I use 586. I don't know why I put 7 there, but anyway... The blue is Israel as an empire or as God's primary instrument, and you'll see it as I progress on the slide here. So we have the end of the kingdom, the destruction of the kingdom, 586, 587. And you might notice that Babylon takes captives 605. And the Babylonian Empire occupied large area, not as large as the next empires, but a considerable empire. All of Israel, parts of Egypt, all of the Fertile Crescent, present-day Iraq, Syria, parts of Turkey. It's the Babylonian Empire. Let's read on and look at the next empire there. Mark, uh, let's see, pick up 39. After you there... After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Two kingdoms mentioned in 39. So another one inferior. Now we're going to have, we're not going to look at Daniel chapter 7. I'm just going to give you a kind of a distinction between chapter 2 of Daniel and chapter 7. But I think he's seeing the same outcome, basically, from a different perspective. That second kingdom is the Persian or Medo-Persian Empire, 539. In other words, they conquer Babylon. And we have some detail in the book of Daniel of that. 
and run all the way to the next kingdom, which would be 331. And these dates you can give and take one year usually. Really amazing for Babylon how huge it was. Its career. Its career? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. not even Well, Babylon existed before that, but I use it 605 in terms of the domination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they began to dominate Israel. So, Medo Persia, which, like Vivian says, uh, was a weaker empire, but yet it lasted longer and probably ex- exercised a greater domain, as you'll see from the map. In other words, they extended the boundaries of the prior Babylonian empire. And there's Israel. So, Israel returns under the Medo Persian Empire. 536 is one of the beginnings there. Zerubbabel and Ezra. Now, I've got Israel down below because they're dominated by these world empires, but they now are becoming a people again. And God is restoring them in preparation for the coming of Messiah, as we've been saying all along. So we have the Medo-Persians. And you can see the kingdom has extended not only in Africa, all of Turkey now, and part of Europe up there, Thrace, and extends even further into the east. So a larger empire, which would go all the way into Persia and beyond, ancient Persia. We could say it's a bear of an empire, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's another image there. And then we have, after that, a Greek empire. But let's read, well, that's it. It's mentioned there. 1039. 39, third kingdom of bronze. Now he's just laying out this image which will rule over all the earth, so all the known earth, which extends even further. And the dates for the Greek Empire, 334 to 63, until conquered by the next world power. And by the way, in your secular world history, a lot of attention will be given to these empires, and very little will be given to Israel. Israel is minimized. And certainly in your secular world history, it won't give you the interpretation, the divine interpretation that these dominate, but they dominate as a discipline of the nation of Israel, and God has a purpose for them. So now we have on our timeline the Greek Empire, which was not only a longer empire in terms of time, but it extended further, and Alexander the Great must have been an incredible individual. In fact, I I don't know of anyone else in world history that in such a short time seemed to accomplish in terms of conquest more than Alexander the Great. So on a map, there's his empire, and it goes all the way to India in the east, and almost the same towards the west, maybe a little less than the uh, Medo-Persian empire, further into Africa, conquests of Alexander the Great. And then what do we have in verse 40? Jim? Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So we have a fourth kingdom. And like I said, you can look these up, and there's a lot of detail concerning these empires and a lot of the secular work. Not much is mentioned in Scripture, but there's a lot of little detail that I could add here if we had more time. So this fourth empire is 
a Roman Empire runs from 63 to an indefinite period of time. It was never conquered by a, another empire, kind of just self-destructed and for a time. For a time. Let's complete this passage, 41. Vivian, why don't you read that one? In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Now, these two parts, some interpret that as it was kind of an eastern and a western part of the Roman Empire, and they kind of competed, and there was some rivalry in there. And you have this mixture that eventually causes the downfall. Keep reading 42. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. Okay, there's that dividedness that I told you about. Sheila, read the rest uh, to 45. Where did we come? 43 through 45. Oh. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic mingled with the seed of man and another, just as iron does not. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and the kingdom shall not be left. It shall break in peace and consume all the and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the without hand, broken pieces, the iron, the bronze, by the silver, and the great God has made known will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and it's sure. Okay, so now he introduces another kingdom. Now, in this context, it's not clear, but when you put all of it together, there's never been a kingdom where God has accomplished what it says here. So it's probably, in fact, very most likely the millennial kingdom, a future kingdom that God will establish, and this kingdom will endure forever. In other words, it will never have a rival. It will never be conquered. It is a kingdom. Now, in chapter 7... We won't read the whole thing, but we have the same layout. And this one, this one is a vision that is given to Daniel. The other one is given to Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel interprets it. And the major difference between these two visions is the one that is given to Nebuchadnezzar is, is pictured as glorious kingdoms from man's perspective. This is the way that man would evaluate it. In other words, one is of gold. In other words, very precious, very uh, elevated. The other is less silver and then bronze, and, and it declines. There's a decline in humanity, decline in empires, but it's from man's perspective. Now, the vision in chapter 7 is a vision of beasts. And if it's a vision of these terrible beasts, what perspective is that? From the Jews. It's a perspective of, it's actually God's perspective, and it's also from the perspective of the Jewish nation under these terrible domination. Yeah, very good. So, two different pictures, but same empires. 7-4, like a lion, that's Babylon, and then there's another one like a bear, that's Medo-Persia. So they correspond, verse 6, there's a leopard, that's Greece, and verse 7 is Rome. After this, I kept looking in the night. In fact, we need to read that one. You want to pick up there? 7-7. Seven, seven, seven. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. 
and it had ten horns. Okay. Now, there seems to be a change in verse 8. And I think, beginning in verse 8, he's going to begin to describe kind of a transition to another time frame. And it won't ultimate, this Roman Empire, if you will, won't ultimately be fulfilled until immediately preceding the, the ultimate millennial kingdom. But I'll let you study that one on your own. So here we have the times of the Gentiles. It'll include Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then Rome self-destructs, disintegrates, and then there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. And on the bottom, I've got Israel, 70 AD. They're they're, uh, dispersed again. Then we have a break in time. And then I project to the end of the age. And in 1948, they were established as a nation again, I think in preparation for the coming of their Messiah. Again, second preparation and a second coming of Messiah. And then beyond that will be the millennial kingdom. But this is a period of discipline upon the nation where God is using Gentile powers before he establishes his nation in the millennial kingdom again. So that's kind of the course of history. So that purple rectangle... Times of the Gentiles. Okay, Okay, so discipline, times of the Gentiles. Right, the purple, exactly. And that'll end at the second coming. And that's the arrow there, where it's the second coming. And then that future... And the future, there's judgment of Gentiles, Gentile nations. And we've seen judgments from time to time through history. In fact, the Medo-Persian conquest of Babylon was a judgment on Babylon. The conquest of the Greeks of the Medo-Persian Empire was a judgment on uh, Medo-Persia. And so also the Roman conquest of the Greek Empire was judgment on them. And the Roman Empire will be ultimately judged in the tribulation period. And we'll talk some more about that when we talk about the tribulation. So we have in scriptures, particularly the prophets, for example, we have predictions of Babylon's destruction. Now, some of these will not ultimately be fulfilled until the very end. So some of them have like a double fulfillment. So Isaiah 13 speaks of Babylon and Babylon being judged. Part of it in time, and part of it even future from our time. And then, obviously, Jeremiah 50 and 51, judgment on Babylon. And the Jeremiah passage won't be fulfilled until final judgment, or not final, but uh, end of tribulation judgment. Moab specifically, Isaiah 15, Jeremiah 48 as well, same, you can say the same for them, same for Egypt, same for Philistia, different passages, Egypt, Isaiah 19, Jeremiah 46, Philistia, or Philistines, Isaiah 23, Jeremiah 47, the Ammonites, Jeremiah 49, and there's other passages and other nations specifically that this gives you kind of representative. And in every case, each of these is judged temporally, and some of it in the Old Testament, but it foreshadows a future and final judgment during the tribulation period at the second coming. When, when was the uh, Esther part of the book? In the book of Esther, what was its relation to any of those judgments? Well, it would be, in Israel? there would be a partial judgment there of the... Um, I mean, is that in Babylon? No, that was Persian. 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 
yeah, ancient Persia, which I don't have on this slide. But like I said, there's other others on there. And if you read any of the prophets, some of them have a longer list, some of them a shorter list. Some of them, like Nahum, kind of focuses in on one nation. So also Habakkuk focuses in more on the Babylonian judgments. So judgments for the nations... And then the ultimate is in the future, future events of Gentiles. We have a Gentile prince that will enter into covenant with Israel. We'll talk some more about that. And we've already mentioned that when we talked about Jewish eschatology. They will, in the tribulation, this is what starts the clock for Israel's 70th week. It's with a Gentile prince who is dominating the world at the time, or will eventually, and we have the rise of that prince. We call him Antichrist. This will take place during the seven years. We'll come back to these. We'll see these when we talk about tribulation. I just want to kind of outline them here in relationship to Gentiles. We'll have tribulation judgments. We'll talk some more about that. We'll have the abomination of desolation. We've mentioned it in relationship to Israel. We'll revisit all of these. We'll have a rebellion of the Gentile nations during this seven-year period. We'll have the destruction of the armies of these nations towards the end of that seven-year period. All of this is during this seven-year tribulation, which we'll talk about next. And during that, we'll have six seals that will be concentrated on the world or the world system, you might say which is Gentile world system, seven trumpets. And we'll come back and talk some more about these. Seven bowl judgments. And I'll give you the, there's at least a couple of ways of putting them together. And I'll give you the two ways. Um, I'm inclined to see them as kind of parallel with one another rather than sequentially. But I'll lay that out for you later on when we talk about tribulation. And the times of the Gentiles will run through today. We're living in the times of the Gentiles, if you will. And it'll run to the second coming of Christ. And on a timeline, the covenant kicks off the seven-year period of time. Rise of Antichrist, the abomination in the middle, that's Daniel 9, verse 27. Rebellion of the nations, the armies destroyed at the second coming. That's Armageddon. The armies of Armageddon are primarily Gentile armies. In fact, entirely Gentile armies. There will be a salvation of Gentiles. We'll talk about that as well in more detail. That's Matthew chapter, well, Matthew chapter 25 pictures a separation of saved Gentiles from uh, unsaved Gentiles. So there'll be a judgment at the end of the seven years. There's also Old Testament passages that predict a relationship with Gentiles. Now, some of them you could see as fulfilled in the church age, but there's going to be specific Gentiles. The Revelation 7, 9, for example, speaks of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are saved during that seven-year period of time. And then there's a final judgment I have judgment twice on that one slide. I was showing you the temporal judgment, and then there's a judgment at the end of the seven years. And the nations will enter into the kingdom. 
believers from Gentile nations that are not part of the church age will enter the kingdom in mortal bodies. Do you get all that? Say it again. Say it again. <laughs> Gentiles that become believers during the seven-year period that are not part of the church, called saints, will enter the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies. So they still have a sin nature. They'll have the sin nature. That's Matthew 25, the third parable there. The separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are believers, the goats are unbelievers. We'll come back and talk about that again. But I want to put it in this context, giving you the Gentile eschatology here. So they will participate in the kingdom. And back to my future events here. They will enter the kingdom. In, this is only believers. Only believers enter. And we'll put that here. So believers from the nations will be part of the millennial kingdom. And those believers, along with any more gentile, there's no scripture that says this, but if there are any believers of their children, then they will enter the eternal state. And all believers will, of gentile nations will enter the eternal state. Kind of the end of all things. Martin. And all unbelievers are destroyed in the truth. Yes, but they are raised again. We'll see that as well. And by the way, Gentiles at the end of the kingdom, remember there's a rebellion. These are Gentile nations. So the children of the Gentiles that do not receive Jesus Christ, now there's not a verse that says that, but you have to kind of, how do you make sense of this rebellion at the end? So descendants of those that are believers at the beginning, over a thousand years, there'll be enough of them that they rebel at the end. That's the end of the millennial kingdom. Even though they're believers, they have sin nature, and when they father children, those children become the sin nature. And they have to trust Christ for their salvation, and apparently some don't. In fact, when we talk about the millennial kingdom, one of the things that kingdom's going to demonstrate is the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man's nature, even in an ideal Environment, even with Jesus Christ reigning on his throne. Even with Satan bound. Even with Satan bound, exactly. Very good. All that's left is the flesh and the old nature. Okay, so we looked at these programs, mainly for Israel. Second program of the church, and Eric's question is now answered. So the Gentiles, and you can start that even around the flood or before, even go all the way to Cain. Gentiles, uh, God uses them primarily as his tool of discipline, and the believers will enter eternity as well. Three distinct programs that God has for three distinct groups. But the underlying theme there is faith in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. A need for Jesus as the only way of escape eternal damnation. Any questions on that before we take a look at the next major area? Kind of a quick review or quick, quick look at Gentiles. So we've dealt with the three different programs. Now I want to look at the specific areas that we've been talking a lot about and get more attention to each of those, and the first one is tribulation. Period of time described as tribulation. Let me give you an introduction to it, and then we'll 
go over as much of it as we'll have time for. Tribulation, little significance of this period of time, a few things to note here. One of the things you'll notice is that this is an extreme time in world history. And what I want to emphasize, there's nothing like it. And it's actually so difficult to comprehend that I think because of that, a lot of people come up with different ways of understanding and interpreting this period of time. I hope I've given you a clear way of interpreting it. If not, maybe we can add to that in our discussion of the tribulation. Just extreme in every way. We'll see that. Secondly, this is such a significant period of time that it's predicted before Israel is even a nation. And we looked at that in some detail. We won't go back to that because I gave you enough on Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And even in Deuteronomy, what is it, 4, I believe, he predicts this period of time. God predicts this period of time in the book of Deuteronomy. And actually, even before Israel, while they were in the wilderness, Leviticus 26. So in Leviticus 26, the first generation received a revelation of this period of time called tribulation. Now, it's not specific there, but he talks about them being destroyed, basically, and a period of very great discipline. And then in Deuteronomy to the second generation, he reiterates it and gives more detail to this period of time. Yeah, the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 25 and on, that's the second generation, and then Deuteronomy 28, and Deuteronomy even 32, I believe, verses 15 through 35, predict the spirit of time. So very significant. Thirdly, again, what do we say every time? This is Jewish eschatology. This is part of Jewish history, predicted to Jewish people even before they're a nation. And every context of passages dealing with this time frame deals with the nation of Israel. There's not a single passage that deals with the church, unless you misinterpret some of the passages, I think. So we're talking about a Jewish event or series of events, Jewish time frame. So just a quick reminder, remember, these are the major elements of Jewish eschatology, their failure and their discipline, all the way back to Leviticus 26. And by the way, the church age and Gentile major periods fall within this part of Jewish eschatology, Israel's failure and discipline. God uses the nations, but he also uses the church in this time of discipline. The next major area or time frame is this tribulation. This is Jewish eschatology. The church is removed. We are pre-tribulational in terms of rapture. And there's going to be a restoration during that period of time. You have this already. I mean, we've gone over this, what, five times now or something? Leading up to the coming, number four, of Messiah, Jewish eschatology. And that includes even first century, first coming. And the Messiah will establish a kingdom. And as we just looked at the Gentiles, Messiah will destroy all of that last kingdom, that Roman, revived Roman kingdom or empire. That's Jewish eschatology in a thumbnail sketch here. 
Now, anything that we have related to the church, and some people, I'm going to make a strong distinction here, there are not many passages being fulfilled today. Instead, during the church age, there may be just preparation for fulfillment. So I don't see anything in Matthew 24 as being fulfilled today. Now, I mention that because there are some from our futurist perspective that see wars and rumors of wars. They even say an increase in earthquakes, which is questionable. In fact, there seems to be a decrease if you look closely at the science there. But they will point to some of those things as fulfillments, and they'll use the word fulfillments. And I would say be very careful with that. That's a more of a historicist approach than a futurist. So I see everything in the Olivet Discourse as Jewish and pertaining to a future period of time, beginning in verse 3, Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. So also, when I give you an overview of the book of Revelation, the bulk of the book of Revelation deals with a future period after the church, from chapter 4 to chapter 18. That's all Jewish eschatology. Book of Revelation, predominantly Jewish eschatology. Rapture is not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, the rapture is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's Jewish. And we have everything else. We have restoration, Messiah, kingdom, in the Olivet Discourse. And we have that also in the book of Revelation. I'll give you an overview. Anything that we see in our time frame may simply be preparation for fulfillment, not fulfillment. Clear? Okay. Last thing in our significance here, number four. There's an abundance of scriptures dealing with this period of time, going all the way back to Leviticus 26. There are more passages that pertain to this period of time than any other major area of eschatology. So it's important. And we'll see, hopefully, why when we get into the details of it. Ray, yes. this might be out there, but um, That's right. I think this is probably with historicist perspective, but... You see and hear a lot about the the what the red moon rising. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that kind of that historicist view of it happening? Yeah, yeah. That that would be an extension of that kind of like is it Joel Rosenberg? Mm-hmm. That whole mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And they have to spiritualize a lot of the passages to make their quote fulfillments work. Even though they're real. Yeah, I'm talking within our camp. Yeah. I would put Hal Lindsey. Well, I have lots of respect for, and I think his late great planet Earth kind of turned the church around and started the church to begin to look at Bible prophecy again. But if you, if you read the great late great planet Earth now, it's out of date because the fulfillments that he saw, what, 35, 20 years ago or whatever, I can't remember the publishing date, we've gone long past that, and that's the problem. So... Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that and bring out the dangers of the historicist viewpoint and seeing fulfillment in the church age. Mark? Uh, Sure, what were you highlighting there? Red what? Red moon. Red moon rising. Is is that a current term? Well, yes. I mean, in the last year, um, there were certain full moon, you know, astrological things. There's, um, there are many things historicists, including probably Calvary's perspective, I've been sitting at the, that, that just sees a lot of influence to natural and a lot of political issues, and it's all like present sense. Yeah. Imminence. Yeah, I, I would, I'd be real careful with that. 
because the same thing will probably happen if the Lord doesn't return soon. The same thing would happen to all of that as what has happened to the late great planet Earth, in that it will look back if we're still here 20 years from now and say, oh, okay, none of that could have happened because... Right. <laughs> Even though I think they agree that Israel, they see Israel as... And they're pre-tribulational. I mean, they don't differ from us very much other than in this little tiny point. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I kind of make a point of it. It's because I think that's a mistake within our camp. I think it's a desire to end. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and we all have the desire, but it's not a good way of satisfying it. The, the last lunar eclipse just a couple weeks ago was a number, I guess, where the, the moon, it, it, it wasn't like um, where it, it just was red, you know. Right. Yeah, and you have to you have to spiritualize because it says the moon will turn to blood. I, you know, I don't know how that happens, but this coloring, I'm not sure that's a full film. I'm, I don't see that as a film. Yeah, I'm just coming. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Okay. I think uh, it's really helpful to uh, to our hope, I'm going to put uh, to think about eschatology in terms of Israel and to just kind of keep keep our attention on what's happening there. In Israel. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the thing that, I mean, think about what it would do to our hope if uh, Iran blew Israel off the, off the face of the planet. Yeah. I mean, you think of the antithesis of what we really expect as far as God fulfilling his plan for Israel. Mm-hmm. I think it contributes a huge amount. When we get our eyes on some of these other things, like their earthquakes and all, you know, these, and then they don't happen to go by, it doesn't help very much. Yeah, yeah, it undermines your, your faith in, in, in scriptures and Bible prophecy. Yeah, okay. Okay. Oh, Seeing things fulfilled that God predicted ahead of, said would happen ahead of time. We say 75% of what he said was going to happen has already happened. That's a huge contribution to our faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, some terms. This is introductory. Just the word tribulation. It's good to do a word study. And if you study the word, flipsis is the Greek word there. Transliterated T H I P S I S, Thlipsis. That word occurs very frequently. Well, I shouldn't say very frequently, 45 times. I guess that's frequent. And it is translated and is referring to lots of things lexically. And this is Arten Gingrich, the standard Greek lexicon. It's a pressing, so it can involve. Material things, it could involve something like uh, pressing grapes in a vine press, although it's not used in the New Testament in that way, but you could use that word. Applying pressure to something, and sometimes it refers in the New Testament to oppression or even affliction, and it's even translated affliction in some places. And in some cases, it's translated as tribulation in a more general sense. And that's the Greek word. And if you look at the usages in reference to just suffering in general, and let me just read these and we won't take the time to look them up. Here's just kind of a general usage of the word. 
And in this case, and it's not always in this case, it could be anything, but in this case it deals in terms of a marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians 7.28, But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have slipsis. I mean, every marriage is going to have problems or troubles, the way it's translated. Just, it's going to happen. Yet such will have troubles in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. That's what Paul is saying. If you can live single, then that is admirable and even better, is what Paul says there. So is this used in a everyday situation? Here's kind of a broad sense in, in a marriage relationship. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have disagreements that you're going to have to resolve. The word tribulation is used, or the Greek word. It's used in a persecution context, and those that take a mid- or post-tribulation view or pre-wrath view will take these same verses and say, hey, see, here it is. It's used in this these contexts to refer to persecution. The church is not immune from persecution, and I would agree up to that point. What I would disagree with is, well, let's investigate the usage of that word more specifically. And an example of that one, what do I have? Acts 11.19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So persecution, and it's translated persecution. And it's referring to the persecution that's described in Acts chapter 8, the stoning of, of Stephen. It's used in that context. So it can be used in reference to persecution, but I think there are some usages that refer to Daniel's 70th week specifically, and we call that the tribulation. And I would distinguish it from just ordinary, everyday, variety, persecution that all believers should anticipate and expect and, to some extent, will, in fact, experience. So I make a strong distinction between the two, mainly because we're talking about so many passages that give us so much specificity, and all of these passages related to Israel. So I would say when we speak of the tribulation, we're talking about Daniel's 70th week. And I think that's the way that Jesus is using it in 24-19. And he uses it in another context as well. 21, 24-21, for there will be a great tribulation. We'll come back to that one. 2429, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, and he's just referred to what was described in verses 3 through 28. And in that context, immediately after that period of time, tribulation of those days, that period, the sun will be darkened and the moon will be will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven, etc. And he describes a second coming. So I see it specifically as Daniel's 70th week. And there's a couple of other passages uh, that I think refer to it in that context. So I make a distinction there. And we'll pick up there next time and look in more detail to this period of time called tribulation. Mark, why don't you close with Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revelation and for the illumination. We thank you for 
Ray and his perseverance, his love for the Word, has been able to provide to us so that we, all of us, have a, have a hope in, in your prophecy and being faithful to you. And so we thank you that the Holy Spirit has provided this revelation and, and will also empower us as we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.